you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, uh, open them up to Isaiah chapter 2. That'll be our primary passage today. I'm not going to preach from the floor, (laughs) but I do want to uh, draw your attention to something as we talk about Advent and we begin our uh, season of Advent. Um, We're going to focus on these four passages of Isaiah that come up in the lectionary for each week. And if you've seen this email that we sent out, this will be uh, kind of a recap. If you didn't see it, uh, I hope that you can look forward to this. Um, We have here uh, some artwork that was put together by some members in our parish, and each panel kind of represents the themes drawn out from each of these passages. And um, today we're going to look at Jesus as the the prophet, the great prophet of God. Uh, Next week we'll look at Jesus as the sage, the wise one, uh, who comes to uh, execute justice. And then we see Jesus as the healer uh, who comes to make a way in the desert and to make all things right. And then finally, our Emmanuel, God with us, we talk about Jesus as the God-man. And so these four portraits of Christ give us a, a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus does um, as our Messiah. Um, and, and Jesus coming as the Messiah is not just in a vacuum. Jesus is not just coming uh, to earth Um, out of nowhere. He's coming as a continuation of the great promises, the great imagery, the great story of the people of Israel. That's why Israel comes up so much in the readings and comes up in the songs, because it's as a continuation of what God did through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through his prophet Moses, through the kings of Israel, through that nation, that Jesus then came and as a fulfillment of all his promises in this world. And so we're going to look at that today in Isaiah chapter 2. So if you're if you're not there, go ahead and turn. You can use your device if you've got a device or a physical copy. And we're going to jump right in. we got a lot to cover uh, so that we're not here forever. Um, it's such a rich passage. So first, I want you to look down at that passage. Look at, at verse uh, 2. Um, it says first that it's, a, it's a, a prophecy of Isaiah. And then in verse 2, it says, It will happen in the last or the latter days, the end days. Um, this is a formal idiom, a formal uh, uh, phrase, figure of speech that happens in the uh, Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And it refers to the, co- the, the days after the coming of God, uh, at the change in history. And the Bible speaks of two ages. There's the present age and the age to come, or, or uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, the age to come. And this comes after this inbreaking of God at the day of the Lord. Um, and, and this coming of God is completely unexpected. We just read about this in, in the gospel. It's completely unexpected. It comes uh, as a thief in the night. Um, I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien, who is the, the, he was a, a philologist, uh, a literary scholar. He studied Old English primarily. Uh, Beowulf was like his thing. Um, and, but he wrote The Lord of the Rings, which is my favorite part of that. And I share a birthday with him, which I'm very excited about. Um, this, he, 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 was, he was awesome, and um, he spoke about this concept of happy endings in fairy tales. He, th- he spoke about this concept of, of this uh, uh, important trait of all good fairy tales, and this consolation of a happy ending is more than just uh, a natural outcome to events as they're expected to unfold. It's not just a natural outcome of expected. It's like, oh, I saw that coming. If that happens, it's not really like a fairy tale. If you see it coming, if it's a natural Uh, outflowing of how things work. No, instead we're talking about a complete and sudden reversal, a complete and sudden reversal of all we would have expected from the grim state of the story. So all hope is lost, we don't know what's going to happen, and then there's this turn. There's this unexpected turn towards hope. And so he coined it, there was no no phrase for this, he coined a phrase called, uh, a word called eucatastrophe. 
You meaning good, like a eulogy, good word. You means good. So a good catastrophe, like, like a catastrophe would be like, out of nowhere, something horrible happens. No, a you catastrophe is out of nowhere, the greatest thing you could possibly imagine happens. Everything is turned on its head, and here's how he describes it. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it's this sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of bad things happening, of sorrow and failure. No, the possibility of, the, of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat. And insofar is evangelium, or good news, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. He's saying that when this happens, think about when the, the this is kind of a silly example, but the, the, the team finally wins the game. Like, ah, they fumbled and we recovered. And it's like, oh my goodness, that wasn't supposed to happen. How did they score 14 points in two and a half minutes? Like, you would never have expected that to happen, but it like fills us with this joy because the unexpected turn to the positive happened. That's in a football game, right? Not 14 points in soccer or something. So this unexpected, unexpected turn, maybe in like a six-year-old soccer game. It's like the goalie is asleep picking daisies or something. So Tolkien goes on to say that you catastrophe strikes us deep in our hearts as fundamentally true at that deep place where joy and sorrow meet. The sun and an unexpected turn for good in stories strikes a chord with us because it, it pulls back the curtain to show us this is to be our hope and is actually true of our primary world. It's the true story of the world where we live and breathe every day. That there is not final universal defeat, that there is catastrophe coming. The truest stories captivate our hearts because they touch on that hope that we all have and they spark that joy of longing that we all need. This joy of the unexpected turn that breaks in upon our longing is the heart and the soul of Advent. That's what we're doing in Advent. Advent is itself the message of a coming eucatastrophe that turns over and reverses all the despair and all the evils in our world. The coming of Jesus does this. So the latter days, back to the text, the latter days of the Bible are not some merely natural historical future where technology and self-improvement will get us if we finally just get our act together and, and get on the same page. The latter days are not a normal and expected future that the world is tending toward. The world is tending toward destruction and evil. Um, and there, there's, this, um, there's this beautiful phrase from, I, I shared in a pre-service from Tolkien where he says that we, we're actually tending towards better and more improved means towards more disintegrated ends. Our ends are, are rubbish and our means are getting quite good. Our technology and everything, everything else. The latter days, actually, in, 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 contrast, in contrast to this, the latter days are the miraculous and supernatural future days when another world breaks in upon this one and totally upends the present age and bowls it over with the age to come. When that happens, the weary world will rejoice, and the latter days will be you catastrophic. So there's your new phrase you can use at Christmas when you're with your family, you catastrophe. So when the latter day comes, what is the prophecy? What is the prophecy when the latter days come? So first, we're going to see in this text that God establishes his dwelling place as preeminent. So look back at verse 2. 
It says in the last days, in verse 2, the mountain of the house of Yahweh, of the Lord, will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up or raised up above the hills, from among the hills. So what is on this mountain? It says the house of Yahweh, doesn't it? So this is another name for the temple, the house of the Lord, the temple. So what mountain is it talking about if we're talking about the temple? This is Mount Zion. Some of you were just in Jerusalem and saw this mountain, the very one. We live in a world that God visited. He's not just out there. He's, he actually came here and stood on that mountain. And it's over there on the other side. I think it's evening time there right now. What is translated here as highest, um, the highest mountain that we made the highest mountain is, is, is more like the head or the chief mountain. Uh, the idea is that it's the most prominent. It's the preeminent and most important amongst the mountains. So this is paralleled by the imagery there then of it being lifted up from among the rest of the mountains, right? It's being made more visible. It's being made more prominent. So why this mountain? Why Mount Zion? Because it is the place with God's name on it. It's the place with God's name on it. After God rescued them from Egypt, in Exodus 15, we have a poem song recorded that celebrates God's victory and strength. And it ends by saying this. It says, uh, you know, you, were, you conquered the horse and the rider, and then all the nations we're about to walk by are going to be stunned in, in silence because um, we're going to walk by and they're going to say, holy cow, that's the, the nation that God just rescued from Egypt who we thought was indestructible. And then it says, you will bring them, Israel, in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is paralleled in several places. One place is in Psalm 132 where it says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So this is why the temple was built on that specific hill and why the city of Jerusalem is there now. It's not even the, most, it's not even the tallest mountain in all of Israel by, by a long shot. There, there are mountains in Oklahoma taller than where Jerusalem sits. It's the fact that God chose it. So a temple in ancient Near Eastern religion was actually fundamentally a place for the repose or the rest of the God. So think about uh, creation. The temple is kind of a microcosm of, of creation. God created everything, and then he created this garden paradise where Adam and Eve and him could rest. On the seventh day, he rested. What's that about? That's about relationship. That's about ceasing from striving. That's about being home. They're at home with God. Well, that goes poorly. Um, fast forward. When that temple is finally finished, um, it says that the glory of the Lord rushes in and fills the temple. So then Israel would speak of Zion, this place where the temple is, as the center of the world and as the place from which God ruled the world. And they weren't the only culture to do this. Other cultures made claims about this of their temples. Um, one scholar says this about ancient Near Eastern gods inhabiting the temple. It says, Finding rest in the temple is the equivalent to being enthroned. It is connected to, to taking up his role as sovereign ruler of the cosmos. So because of that, the temple actually provides a, a, um, a symbolic reality for this concept, hence house of the Lord. It's his house. Now, we know that he's everywhere. He's not contained. He says, I can't be contained in this house. But it's the place where his special presence dwells among his people, where he would be with his people. So, Put this together, this idea of the temple being a house, 
But this together with the language of Zion being lifted up in the latter days, it refers to God taking decisive action uh, to build his own house. Someone else doesn't build it for him, he builds it himself. And he makes it the most prominent and visible house in the whole of the world. It's like the, the parable of the mustard seed, right? It starts out small, Jesus says, and then it grows to fill the whole world and that the birds will, will rest in it. The kingdom of God is now so small, it's like hidden, but one day the kingdom of God will grow and will be visible to all. Daniel prophesies about this too. And the prophet Daniel, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is like, I'm having this crazy dream. There's a huge statue. It's made out of all this different stuff. And then a rock comes out of space and smashes it. Someone tell me. None of his people can tell him. They're all like, ah, I don't even know. Daniel comes in. He doesn't even have to tell him the dream. Daniel's like, I know your dream. Here's what happened. You had a crazy big statue made out of a bunch of different materials, which is illogical. And then a stone comes out of heaven and smashes it. And then the stone grows to become a whole mountain that fills the whole world. What does that sound like? Sounds like Zion being lifted up above all the other mountains. I think that's pretty awesome. It's it's like Jesus like, just shattering the kingdoms of the world. By the way, that statue represents all the human kingdoms of the world. He comes and he dismantles those other kingdoms. In the latter days, a eucatastrophic event will take place where God establishes his dwelling place as the most important and the most visible in the world and will bring the kingdoms of this world low dismantling them. This is what the Magnificat, Mary's song, speaks of so well. Once this mountain of the house of the Lord is established, then what? What's going to happen there? What will happen once God establishes this mountain? Well, the prophet talks about this. Keep going in verse 2. Once this uh, mountain is established, the first activity seen on this new mountain is a stream of people coming from every direction to come to the house of the Lord. Look at the last line of verse 2. It says, And all the nations, or Gentiles, will flow or stream to it. It continues in verse 3 to say, And many people will come and say, Come, let us ascend to the mountain of Yahweh. Let's go on a hike. Not just to see beautiful views, but why? To the house or the temple of the God of Jacob. So Isaiah gives this imagery of a river. It says they'll stream to it or flow to it. It's like if you see from from above a huge caravan of people, it looks like a river on the ground coming to the mountain. They're just flocking from, and there's rivers coming from all over the place, rivers of people coming to the place where God dwells. And there's two details about this that would make any Jewish listener raise their eyebrows. The first is that this is not talking about Jews returning. This is talking about the nations, the Gentiles, all the people who don't yet know Yahweh as their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not about them. There are other prophecies about that, for sure, uh, in the Old and New Testament. But this one is about how God's established dwelling place will be an attractional center for all those nations which formerly did not actually call on God as their own God. See that? This is about a whole new... uh, a sector of people coming to worship him. And second, they're not coming for political reasons. Like in Isaiah 39, there's a king who comes and tries to make an alliance with Hezekiah, sees all their wealth, and then decides to come back and conquer them because he wants to take the wealth. It's not like that. They're not coming to conquer. No, they're, coming to, they're not coming to siege. They're coming specifically to go to the temple of the God of Jacob. They're going to worship. Think about that. All these other nations of the world, they're coming to, to worship Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're doing something else. They're going to learn to live according to God's instructions. So look at the next two lines in verse 3. They go up, so he will teach us his ways, and so we can walk in his paths. 
This is crazy. This is a global mass conversion of people coming to the mountain of the house of the Lord. They're coming not only to worship him, but to also reform their lives and to reform the way their nations fundamentally function to align with the law of God, to put down all warfare. Think about that. What if every nation right now was like, done, no more fighting, we were good. That's what's happening. And they, they turn their, uh, their sides or their pruning hooks, they, they, they turn them, or excuse me, their spears, they turn them into pr- pruning hooks to cut down wheat instead of people. I think it's awesome. So what causes this? In, so in a word, they want to live under the law of Yahweh now. Okay, so what causes this? Why is there a massive shift? So there's this tiny nation in a corner of the world that worships this God that no one else worships. And then over time, what happens? All the nations of the earth flow to it. What would cause this? What would cause this? I mean, we're talking global effect. What would cause this? This is, if you go back 3,000 years, this is insane. It's not going to happen. What are you talking about? Your little 2,000, I think it's 2,300 foot hill. It's a nice temple. It was. It's not there anymore. What causes this? Why does Zion and Jerusalem become the center of the world, not only as to be a home to be at with God, but also as a place, a center of instruction? The reason is the word of God. God speaks. Look at, verse, look at the last two lines of verse three. It says, because all this will happen for out of Zion will go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. So this is the pivot. This is the pivot. They have like a mini, mini narrative happening. This is like a crazy fairy tale. There's a pivot here. Uh, up till this point, God built his mountain in the midst of the nations, overcoming their kingdoms. Then the nations streamed to the mountain in the attractional way. But embedded within that narrative now, the law, the word of Yahweh, goes out from the mountain. So this reveals that actually, once the mountain was established, what happened, the first thing that happened wasn't people just came because it was a super nice hill. The first thing that happened was the word of Yahweh went out from his holy abode. What law goes out? The word law there, uh, translated, it's Torah, um, and can, be, can literally mean law. Even in English, we use the word law to mean a lot of different things. Um, but in this context, it's certainly me- meant to bring to mind the law which went out from that first mountain, Mount Sinai. Israel was rescued out of Egypt, and this is, a really, this is an actual depiction of what happened. It was a tiny little skinny mountain. I'm just kidding. Um, Moses goes up, and he's receiving the instruction. This is a, a theological portrayal, an icon of what happened. He's receiving instruction and in law from God, and the people at the bottom of the mountain are going to receive that, and it's going to go out into the nations. This is what's in the minds and in the background of this text. When he comes down from the mountain, they go out, they conquer the nations, they go into Israel, they take over that land, right? So think about what just happened. God will make his dwelling with us, it says. And then the word of Yahweh will go out from Jerusalem, and then all the nations will stream to Yahweh. What is this? This is none other than the coming of Jesus Christ to establish God's home in his people. This is Jesus the prophet. This is Jesus the great prophet like Moses. He's coming to establish 
God's home in his people, to send out the gospel through his church from Jerusalem. And where once only a small number worshiped Yahweh, now billions across the world acknowledge him as God, however imperfectly, from every nation of the world. This has been fulfilled in our world and is being fulfilled before our very eyes. It's insane. It's, it's, it's ludicrous for a small nation to even think this is the case when they're about to be ransacked by Assyria and, and Babylon back in 600 B.C., 5-something, 570-something B.C. Here we are, literally, 2,500 years later, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, is worshipped all over the world. We could talk about that for a long time, but there's one more thing I want to get to. Now that the nations come, what does God do? We can just leave that up for now until we get to the temple, um, or until we get to the, uh, the old picture. So once they come, what happens? It says that he will judge between nations and that he will settle disputes between the peoples uh, there in, chat, in verse uh, 4, I believe. So the primary image of, of the, the prophet here then is once they come, God will settle disputes between nations and he will settle disputes between peoples. The primary image being evoked here is that of the judgment council at the gates of the cities. So the council of elders and prophets and whatever would sit at the gates of towns and this is where they would hang out and they would do their judicial stuff. These towns back in the day, back in the way back in the day, like old Israel, uh, they built really close together and then put a wall around it and then they had one gate. So there was not like open space and you lived there with like all your relatives and all your animals. And then if your animals needed water, you had to go out the gate and you had to go get them water out there and they had to eat grass and stuff and they came back in the gate and they, you, know, you had like a cow or something or a goat. Right? It was like the milk for your family. That's what they did. So everyone was in and out that gate. That was the main thoroughfare. And they had no common space. They had streets. But their common space was outside in front of the gate. It was the gate plaza. So that's where all kinds of things happened. Would you show that gate photo, please, Kevin? Um, that city gate is where, if you ever hear in the scriptures, you're probably going to go, oh, where it's like when you're sitting in the gate, we read about it today. If we're in the gate, there's judgment happening. If you're in the gate doing this, in the gate, there's all kinds of kings are sitting in the gate to send out their armies. Their armies would gather here and they'd sit and, and they would go out. Um, what would happen is they'd sit in the gate and they would do, there's like a council of elders who would sit there and hear cases and then settle disputes between people. And that's where it happened, right in, right in the middle of everybody. This was kind of like your public jury. And then they would be done. This is where public announcements were made. This is where Jeremiah prophesied in the gate because that's where everyone was. This is where judicial stuff was happening. Sometimes they would even have thrones or daises sitting outside these gates where you could sit and uh, make judgments as a king. Um, if it's, it, the first person to ever do this in Israel, for Israel, was Moses. If you, if you go to Exodus 18, you don't have to go there right now, but if you were to go there to Exodus 18, they've come out of Egypt, and it says in verse 13 of chapter 18, the next day Moses sat to judge the people. What does that mean? He sat as an arbiter between, in disagreements. And it says the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And then his father-in-law is like, you can't do this all day. You've got to appoint other people to help you to take on the lesser cases or you're just going to die from exhaustion. But he would sit there as judge and he would settle disputes between people. And this is what Jesus does when he comes as king and he comes as the new prophet. 
to settle disputes between the nations of the world. So God establishes his home. The word goes out. The nations come. And then when they get there, there's this new prophet with a new law who comes to administer justice and to arbitrate disputes between peoples for all of time. And it results in peace. This is the prophet. This is what Jesus does as the new prophet. He comes as the prophet of God to establish the house of God and to speak the things of God while he administers the judgments of God. This, by the way, is what the entirety of Hebrews 3 and 4 is about, the book of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 are about. Moses was a servant who oversaw God's house and was faithful as far as a servant goes. But Jesus is now this son over God's house who inherits it. He's greater than the servant because he is the son. And Moses went on the mountain to receive the law written on stone. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father to receive the Spirit and then to write the law of the Spirit on our hearts on tablets of flesh. Moses came down, and they were all rowdy, and they couldn't obey the law, and they died. It's a pretty bad story. Jesus sends it down, and he gives us a law that does what? Leads to life. It doesn't lead to death. He's the greater and second Moses. He comes as this prophet now to administer justice and to give a new law of the Spirit to his people and to establish God's dwelling place. This is what he does as the prophet of God. And here's the turn. All of this entails a promise and an offer of God's rest if we receive it in faith. At the end of the day, you and I are the nations who are called to stream to the mountain of God. You and I are the nations who are called to come and to hear the word of, of, of Yahweh and to bring our disputes and our matters to prophet Jesus, to King Jesus. And if we come through him, through that front gate, we will abide in the house of the Lord forever. And this mountain of the house of the Lord will be our house. But we don't know when that day comes. So our charge now is to be ready and to listen. Don't be like them who heard and did not listen and died in the wilderness, but be those who hear and who obey and who come to Jesus with faith and then abide with him forever. Amen. Amen.